welcome everyone to this first policy and practice seminar of the new term, hosted by the Department of Political Science in UCL and the School of Public Policy, and also co-hosted by the UCL European Institute. I'm Robert Hazel, and I'm a professor in the Department of Political Science, and for the last nine years, I've been the convener of these policy and practice seminars, but it gives me great pleasure and pride to say that this year I'm handing on to my colleague Fergus Green, uh, who's sitting in the front row, and he has very kindly invited me to chair tonight's seminar and to introduce our speaker this evening, Klaus Vella. And for those who don't know him, uh, I will give you a one-minute potted biography. Klaus was a politician in Germany in the CDU, the Christian Democrats. He then uh, went to work for the EPP, the European People's Party, which is the centre-right grouping in the European Parliament and the largest grouping in the European Parliament. And then about 13 years ago, in 2009, he became the Secretary General of the Parliament. And during his time as Secretary General, he has greatly built up the policy and research capacity of the Parliament and made it a much more powerful central institution within the EU. But tonight, Klaus is not going to talk directly about the Parliament. His title is, let me find it, The Ukraine and the Implications for the European Union. He's going to talk for about 25 to 30 minutes so that we'll have lots of time afterwards for Q&A. And then we'll finish, I promise, at the latest by 7.30. And after that, we invite you all to come downstairs and join us to have a drink in the Jeremy Bentham room. But I'll give you instructions about that at the end. So tonight, could you please join me in welcoming Klaus Weller. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much for this uh, very friendly um, reception. Uh, I have to give a word of warning at the beginning because yesterday I had my fourth COVID vaccine. So if I should say something strange, you know why this is. Um, so the title of my talk is The War in Ukraine, Implications for the European Union. And uh, I like to approach issues from, not from the detail, but from the principles, from the structures. So on the Ukraine war, I would like to start with the following. There's a lot of debate, also in the public debate, in the media, where you can read, has Putin gone mad? Has he, has he changed? I've read, for example, Tony Blair said he was a much better fellow some years ago, and he has fundamentally changed. I learned when I was a university student that madness should always be the explanation of last resort, but not the explanation of first resort. The first attempt always needs to be made to find out what is the specific rationale, even and especially if that specific rationale is not your own rationale, 
but the fact that somebody thinks or acts differently should not be a starting point to say that somebody has gone mad. So let's make an attempt. How can Putin's logic be reconstructed in a rational way? I would like to give you eight arguments. That doesn't mean that I share this approach, of course. But I would like to give you eight arguments why maybe, from his point of view, this all is rational, if you accept his fundamental assumptions. So the first is, when you look at Russian history, you see that Russia has steadily increased to the east, to the south, and to the west. I read a calculation, I don't know whether that calculation is correct, but I read a calculation that on every year, on average every year, 50 square kilometer has been added to Russia. So that means territorial expansion in Russian history is not the exception, but rather the rule. And let's admit it, in our cases, territorial expansion until some time ago was also not the exception, but rather the rule. Secondly, when we look at what's happening in Ukraine, we can see a trace of continuity even during the Putin period in office. We've seen a whole set of armed conflicts started by him in the immediate neighborhood with the aim to cripple the neighbors. Uh, we can mention here Georgia. We can mention at the very beginning Chechnya, which is inside the Russian Federation. Georgia even twice. We can also, to a certain extent, make reference to Armenia-Azerbaijan, where conflicts between Armenia and Azerbaijan, which have a very peculiar form of their geography, has been used to permanently station Russian troops there and gain a certain level of control. The third argument you can find is that historical experience forces Russia or motivates Russia to want a considerable buffer zone. When you read geopolitical literature, you are normally told that because it's all flat and there are very few mountainous hindrance obstacles in the way, Russia always needed a large territory where potential aggressors uh, would then, uh, could then be defeated simply by the kilometers they had to travel. And the examples normally given are Napoleon, who arrived to Moscow and then Moscow was burned and he was without any logistical support. And the other example is the German army during Nazi Germany time. 
which also tried to conquer, but also got lost in the deep Russian space. So geopolitics, politicians call this strategical depths. When you look at the eastern border of Ukraine and the distance to Moscow, that distance is, if I see it correctly, less than 300 kilometers. That means that the warning range is no longer there. The fourth argument, and I would like to tell you again, I tried to put myself into Putin's rationale. I'm not presenting you, please, my rationale. The fourth argument is that this is an imperialist war. Other countries in Europe separated themselves from their imperial tradition. But it's easier if the empire has been stretched over the whole world and is not in your immediate neighborhood. And the fifth argument is, and that's an argument that you can find with uh, Timothy Snyder, a historian, that this is a war of colonization, uh, which means that Ukraine, and that's his argument, has been the traditional object for colonial strive. Might it be Russian colonization with the behavior that goes with it? Might it be German colonization? That's the argument of Timothy Snyder. He is saying the Second World War was basically a colonial war and the victims were the Ukrainians. And he's equally saying, look at the history of Ukraine in the 1930s, and this was Russian colonial behavior. When you listen to Putin's declaration of war speech, you nevertheless see that he goes far beyond these arguments. And I can only recommend to you to listen very attentively to that declaration, because I think he took about one hour to outline why uh, he took that decision. It's not even only, and maybe not even only, a speech about Ukraine, but that speech is a speech about the revision of the post-Second World War and then post-1989-1991 European order. So the requests are not limited to Ukraine. The requests are to basically unravel the eastern enlargement of both NATO and the European Union, which as a consequence would create a space of separate security between different member states of the European Union, where some would be exposed potentially to aggression and violence, whereas others could still feel safe. That means that we should not look at this war as a local or regional phenomenon. And that's important. It's fundamentally different from the aggressions against Georgia or uh, in the immediate neighborhood in Chechnya. It is a fundamental challenge 
directed against the credibility of the European Union and NATO. Because if ever those requests had been accepted, the security guarantee of NATO wouldn't have been worth a lot, and the European Union would have separated into areas of different security. He then delivers an additional argument which I think is important to understand. He is arguing that the unipolar world, which he associates to the United States, has to be finished. And it should be replaced by a bipolar world. So what does he mean when he says bipolar world? Bipolar world is not just that you have a geographical center here or a pole and another geographical center there or another pole. But he makes a fundamental difference between the Western world, which is at the end of the day based on individual human rights, the person, democracy, minority rights, and what he sees as the other pole, where it's not the individual at the center that has to be protected, but something collective, and that something collective is the, in, is the eternal Russian people, which has gone through different stages. One of them was Russia's role in the Soviet Union. Another one was the Tsarist time. But it's a fundamental difference here because his prime concern for what needs to be protected is not the individual person, but the prime concern is a collective entity which is eternal Russia. In that sense, he tries to build a bridge between other political systems where also a collective entity is more important than the individual, like in the People's Republic of China or also in Iran. He then thirdly says that there is no such thing as a Ukrainian people. Ukrainian people doesn't exist. You see, he's a hobby historian, you know. The Ukrainian people, according to him, doesn't exist. Neither should exist a Ukrainian state. It's all just a different version of Russia. He then makes a historical comparison and saying something which I found astonishing. He's saying that Lenin was naive, which is not the general estimate in history that uh, people have about Lenin. Lenin is naive because he allowed a Ukrainian republic within the Soviet Union to be established. And secondly, they even could execute real rights. He then goes on and explains that Stalin was less naive. Normally also we don't link naivety to Stalin. Stalin was less naive 
He was less naive because, yes, he allowed an independent Ukrainian republic to continue to exist, but at least it had no meaning in practice. So the solution, finally, is him. He's much less naive than Lenin, and he's much less naive than Stalin, and he wants to come to an outcome where neither a Ukrainian entity, a Ukrainian state, a Ukrainian republic can exist formally, nor can it have any real power, of course, in practice. That means these three arguments which he is presenting, first, that he's asking for a fundamental revision backwards of NATO enlargement and European Union enlargement. Second, that he is introducing the idea, the concept that has to be realized of a bipolar world, which is not just two geographical entities, but is fundamentally different in the value that the individual human person plays. And thirdly, that he is simply neglecting that there is such a thing as a Ukrainian state or Ukrainian republic or Ukrainian people. It's all just a version of Russia. This combination makes it that we cannot think just of a regional conflict or a bilateral conflict between Russia and Ukraine. But we have to understand that this is a fundamental challenge of the global order as it was established after 1991. So I've tried my best to reconstruct Putin's rationale, which is not my rationale. So let's try to reconstruct the Ukrainian rationale. Why is Ukraine investing itself to that degree that Ukraine is doing? First, they have understood that this is not about a region here or a piece of land there, but it's a fundamental threat to their very existence as a Ukrainian state and as a Ukrainian people. And they've also understood that if they don't take up that challenge, they will be colonized again. When I say colonized, I mean they will be treated like people who don't have human rights, which cannot be negotiated or lost. And we see already now that roughly, probably about one million people were deported to Russia, that many children were given up for adoption. <laughs> Ukrainians have in their collective memory that in the 1930s, under Stalin, they lost more than three million people because Stalin thought that what they were producing could be taken away and sent somewhere else. So they have this historical experience as a country and as a nation. Uh, and I um, had the privilege two weeks ago uh, to be in Irpin and Butcha, very close to very close to Kiev. 
And uh, you can see it then and hear it then with your own eyes that, in fact, individual human rights under this ideology are not protected. Secondly, we can also try to reconstruct the Ukrainian motivation as a willingness to finally create a nation state. We know from history that the nation state has been moving from west to east. In the 19th century, it was Germany's turn and Italy's turn to establish a nation state. In the 20th century, many of the former countries incorporated into, Austro, into the Austro-Hungarian Empire could establish their nation state. And one way to understand what is happening is that the creation of nation states in Europe is still not finished but moving further east. The interesting thing is that the Ukrainian idea of nation-state is from the very beginning linked to the European Union. It's not presented as something which is contradictory but the possibility to establish a Ukrainian nation-state is very closely linked to the possibility of integrating into the European Union. And we remember that during the Maidan revolution, there was a huge pile on Maidan Square, and on the top of that pile was a European flag. We remember that the revolution which broke out against President Yanukovych was motivated by the fact that President Yanukovych did not want to continue with the association agreement with the European Union. It's something which we have to keep in our mind more than we do, that people are ready to fight and maybe even to lose their life for an association agreement with the European Union. That's not, let's say, conventional wisdom, uh, but it was the case in, um, in Ukraine. So, to a certain extent, we are speaking again about the European Rescue of the Nation State, a book uh, published some decades ago. To develop that argument one step further, when we look at the map of the European continent, we can see that basically space is organized according to two different and diverging principles. You have the principle of empire in the east, Empire means that you can submit other people, you can subordinate other people, and it's not a coalition of equals. In the West, we have what I call a union of citizens and states 
which is a legal construction which starts with the idea of sovereignty and equality among those member states who join a community of law. And when you see in between, you have a state, you have a space which is quickly disappearing, which is the space of Ukraine and the space of potentially Moldova, or let's call it a space which is in danger. That doesn't mean, of course, and I know that I'm speaking in Britain, that everybody is a member. But states in that piece, in that part of the continent, all have specific contractual relations which link them to and into the European Union. So as I've said, the principle of empire is submission. The principle of empire is colonization. And that means that violence is inevitable. Because normally your neighbors don't like to be submitted uh, to your will and therefore a free agreement is difficult. The union of citizens and states, on the other hand, is based on contractual relationship, relationship of at least legally equals, and different depths of integration that individual countries can apply for. So when we are imagining that map that is structuring Europe among two principles, empire in the east, and a union of citizens and states in the West, then the question is about, raised about the geopolitical nature of the European Union. My argument would be that the European Union, from its very beginning, conscious or not, has been a geopolitical actor because already membership in the European Union has allowed to transcend space. I'm a German, so we were fighting for centuries with the French about the Rhine border. Where should it exactly be? It was a big French ambition, not me personally. Yeah? So. When you are part of the same space, you don't need to do that anymore that conflict has gone. It doesn't matter. You use that river, both of you. So the European Union from the very beginning has been a geopolitical actor, both by membership, because space is enlarged and redefined, but also through association agreements and even customs agreements, because it redefines the relationship, what is possible in that space with the neighbors in terms of movements of people, but also movements of goods and services. So, what will be the outcome of this war? Um, of course, we don't know. But my assumption is that Russia will be losing this war, whatever that means. Why is this important? No, I'm speaking here as a, as a German. 
Germans in the past had strange ideas on how the European continent should be organized. And it needed a very thorough defeat to change that mindset. I believe that if Russia wants to free itself from its imperial mindset, it will need a defeat in Ukraine. And that's something that could be liberating Russia as well. If the Russian business model, which is you're a relatively poor country, but you have an army which is much bigger than your means would normally allow, you have a security apparatus which is much bigger than your possibilities would normally allow, if that business model would stop to be successful, Russia would need to fundamentally rethink its relationship with its neighbors. And stopping wanting to be an empire is the precondition for close relations with the European Union. If Russia should be losing that war, it will find that dependency on China is something which is not very attractive. I hope I'm not insulting too many people here. Why is dependency on China not very attractive? If you have only one buyer of what you have to sell, the price is normally very low. You should have at least two or three. If basically Russia can send gas and oil and raw material mainly to China, the Chinese are in a wonderful negotiation position and Russia is in a very bad one. So therefore, there is a potential, I believe, that Russia will reflect. Russia post-empire can be a potential partner of the European Union because objectively the interests of the European Union and Russia, at least in economics, are complementary. You have Russia as a huge space full of raw material and you have the European Union with still an important industrial base which is in serious need. So the question is, could we under those conditions face a kind of reverse Kissinger moment? Um, I, I've had the pleasure together with Anthony uh, over the last years to, um, to have a discussion with Henry Kissinger in New York. He's now, I think, 99. Uh, but you have to be very well prepared if you <laughs> if you want to go if you want to go into into that and we've also been asking that question the kissinger moment was of course when he went to beijing supported by nixon and separated china from russia from the soviet union by offering openness uh, of the west uh, and integration into step-by-step -step integration into the global uh, order. The United States are now perceiving China as the major challenger to them. So their interest to separate Russia from China, I think, will be there. And 
what about the European Union? Otherwise, you will accuse me that um, I did not speak about the topic that has been uh, asked for me today. What about the European Union? We see again that in a crisis situations, the member states turn to the European Union for a solution. We've seen this in the financial crisis, we've seen this with COVID, we are seeing this now. And the interesting thing is, the member states turn to the European Union, whether the European Union has formal competence or not. The European Union competences on health are relatively minimal. We could argue that the European Union competence on security and defense are also relatively minimal. But when you're speaking to prime ministers across the European Union, they will tell you that this is a conflict which they cannot manage on their own. So they need to manage it as a team in the European Council and supported by the European Commission. We can also see that the reaction time has permanently been reduced. In the financial crisis, I think it's fair to, to say that maybe you could calculate this in years. At least it felt like years. During the COVID crisis, it was six weeks. And on Ukraine, it was two days. So the capacity of the European Union system to deal with these kind of challenges has been improved. Why is the European Union an actor on Ukraine? There is a book title um, which is called The Weaponization of Everything. The weaponization of everything. If everything can be weaponized, refugees, energy, raw material, if everything can be weaponized, then NATO does no longer have the complete toolkit. NATO has the traditional toolkit which means military equipment and coordination. But if we are living in times of weaponization of everything, then the European Union partly has to take the lead. That was the case on refugees, already with refugees on the Belarusian border, but also with Ukrainian refugees, where the decision was taken very quickly that Ukrainian refugees could enter under privileged conditions. And in fact, more Ukrainians have entered the European Union than, during, uh, than Syrians during the so-called refugee crisis, but on a completely different legal base. The European Union, not NATO, was the place for sanctions. So we had seven sanction packages. Now we can read that member states agreed to an eighth sanction package. 
So it's neither the individual member state nor NATO which agrees on sanctions and the sanctions which are the most serious that have ever been passed, but it's the European Union for Europe. The European Union even has started to pay weapons, if I still calculate correctly, for two and a half billion euros. Has to respond on electricity, on energy, and last not least, last not least, it was the European Union who had to give the Ukrainians hope in the sense of giving a perspective for EU membership, how much time ever that might take. So one of the outcomes of the Ukraine war is that it's becoming clear that NATO and the European Union in a security crisis are necessarily complementary if we are living in times of weaponization of everything. And I can just add to complete the picture that I know from my colleague, Secretary General of the Commission, that the contacts with the United States side were daily. Sometimes the impression was more intense with us than between different bodies of the American administration. So another consequence, I believe, for the European Union will be that opportunistic players, let's call them like this, opportunistic players who like to take what they can take from the European Union but they're also very happy to take from Russia, and they're also very happy to take from China, and maybe at the same time they don't want to respect the rules, that those opportunistic players might be losing their major sponsor and their role model, and will therefore have to align to the system. If we look at it from the American point of view, which is always Eurasia, not Europe. When they look over here, they don't see Europe, they don't see Asia, they see Eurasia. When we look at it from an American point of view, then they see that China is weakening because the potential partner, Russia, is de facto disarmed in this conflict disarmed in the term in, in the sense of weapons, but also disarmed in the sense of very skilled military men. And therefore, the perspective of Taiwan 2027, which was a request by Xi Jinping to the Chinese military, uh, is becoming much more doubtful. For us, in the European Union, the key thing is to develop what we call strategic sovereignty. What does strategic sovereignty mean? Strategic sovereignty means that you are prepared in times of major disruptions and that you are able to continue and to survive in times of major disruptions. And the United States, the United States 
has geopolitically always two targets. They want nobody rivaling them on the Atlantic and nobody rivaling them in the Pacific. The Atlantic is okay since the Royal Navy is a bit reduced in size. In the Pacific, uh, they are worried about China. But the second is always that's that no single force is able to dominate Eurasia. In that sense, uh, this war is weakening potential competitors. And at the same time, the American engagement has re-established their own credibility. So I think now I also need to say something about the United Kingdom, which of course is the most dangerous part of this uh, speech. <laughs> so let's start with a nice thing. The United Kingdom has given an example by very strongly supporting Ukraine. And if I understand it correctly, President Zelensky is kind of the Churchill of our time, standing out, fighting against an adversary, which should normally be a multiple of his weight. Uh, the United Kingdom has shown that they continue to be a very reliable partner in European security. But there's also another reason why I'm optimistic for EU-UK relations. And that's the near meltdown of the pension funds on the 23rd of September. I believe that the near meltdown of the pension funds on the 23rd of September marks the high point of the agenda of radical Brexiteers who wanted to deregulate as much as possible and lower taxation as much as possible. And they were not hindered in this agenda by the political process, but very ironically by the markets. The markets have told them that here there is an absolute limit. And therefore, I believe that either already this government, but at the latest, the next government, will much better understand the limits to voluntarist politics and therefore be much more open for a cooperation agenda with the European Union. On the mid and long term, I'm anyhow optimist. Because when you had a look at the Brexit vote, you could see that the younger the voters, the higher the approval rate for the European Union. In the youngest voting section, you had about 70% in favor for Remain. But the young people were kicked out of the European Union by those in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. I believe that the outvoted will correct this historic mistake in the midterm when they are taking power and are running this country and under the condition that the European Union still is in good shape and attractive. The European Parliament supported Ukraine from the very first day. 
Roberta Metzola, our president, went to Kiev for solidarity as the first president of the European institution. The European Parliament was the first parliament around the world which allowed President Zelensky to address it digitally from a distance. And then this was kind of industrialized around the world, including the US Congress. But the example was set by us. Um, we have voted all the support packages for Ukraine. And today, another resolution with 500 in favor and 20 against. And also, as the administration, we've been supporting the RADA to keep democracy alive with everything we can, with IT equipment, with data space, with armored cars, with cleaning material, and now increasingly also with support in the process of going in the direction of membership for the European Union. We know that the Ukrainians defend our freedom and therefore we need to support the Ukrainians. Thank you. Um, probing a bit about the implications for the European Union. So I think the first thing I'm curious about is how strong was solidarity between the member states? There have always been fault lines, that's no secret. In the past, quite strong fault lines on some issues, talking broadly between North and South in Europe, particularly over the Euro, for example. Um, are there any new fault lines that have been exposed in terms of stronger or weaker responses to, the, to Ukraine? Yeah. Should I from here? Please. Or standing? No. Do you if, want me to... if you're happy to yes. stay sitting, is that all right? Yeah, that's very much all right. Um, of course, any representative of Parliament will immediately be happy to explain to you that the member states are always the problem. So I should not make uh, an exception um, to this, and I'm very happily doing that. Um, but I think the more important is that all those sanction packages at the end were adopted, mm -hmm. seven and now eight. And they're going further than any sanction package in the history globally has ever been voted. So yes, there are issues to be discussed on the way because countries are in special situations. If you are a landlocked country like Czech Republic, for example, you don't have access to the sea. So it's very difficult for you to compensate Russian gas by liquefied gas. So they can only go along if neighboring countries like Germany, who can have access to the sea, are ready to share. And these are legitimate arguments that are being made and uh, that were, uh, that were sorted, uh, sorted out. But I must say, for me, the surprise is rather that at the end of the day, all these packages were passed and in a dimension that has been historically absolutely new. And you mentioned the, the votes in the European Parliament where a small number of members mm -hmm. did vote against, or presumably abstained. Can you tell us briefly who they are? Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, <laughs> I didn't check the voting list, but what I can say and what is surprising is that you would have assumed some time ago 
that maybe parties more on the political fringes uh, would be happy to have close relationship to Vladimir Putin and therefore defend the war. This has not happened. Uh, the, um, the political leader of the left group, I mean, in the past we would have said communist group, but let's say the left group in the European Parliament, took a very clear position uh, against uh, the Russian aggression against Ukraine. And even on the very right, where there were friendly relationships in the past, uh, we haven't seen an outright defense, but on the contrary, rather, rather unity. And that's why I believe that the influence which was built up by Russia on certain countries and certain parties uh, will not survive this war in Ukraine. Thank you. Thank you.